Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 80 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Today I'm joined by Christy Campbell, who is a long-time listener of the Healthy Gut Podcast. One of the great things about what we're doing with season two is you, the listener, has the opportunity to come in live and ask me questions, or you can pre-record questions yourself. And Christy was one of those people that said, yeah, I'd love to come on the show. So I'm thrilled to have her on the show. She's a SIBO patient herself, and she asks me a range of SIBO-related questions, which I answer for her today. So I really hope you enjoy today's episode and find it useful. If you would like to come onto the Healthy Gut Podcast as a guest, or you know someone who would make an amazing guest for the for the podcast, I would love to hear from you. Now, to do it yourself, to come on as a guest, it's super simple. You can head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast. And on that page, you will see an orange button that says, leave a message for the Healthy Gut Podcast. It will record up to two minutes. So plenty of time for you to record a message, which I will then include in a future episode. Alternatively, if you'd like to do what Christy has done and come on for a full episode, you just need to email me and let me know you're interested. My email is Rebecca at thehealthygut.com. Now, guys, we've only got two more episodes after this left in season two of the Healthy Gut podcast. I know it's nearly over. Oh, sob. But the good news is we are coming back for season three. Hooray! (laughs) But this is where I need your help. I would love to hear from you in terms of what interviews, what topics and what guests you would like to see on the show for season three. I've put together a super quick survey for you to fill out and I would love for you to answer a couple of those questions so I can be sure that I'm bringing you the content that you want to listen to in season three. So head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast and you can not only see the episode from today, you can see all of the episodes from season two and you'll see a pop up where the survey is available for you to fill in. And it would mean the absolute world if you could do that for me. So I thank you in advance for spending a couple of minutes helping me to bring you the right kind of information in season three. And don't forget, guys, to sign up as a member of the Healthy Gut podcast. It means that you're notified the moment a podcast goes to air. You also get a free transcription from the show. 
and that really helps to read along as you're listening. It's great for the days where brain fog is bad or when we're going through quite complex subjects. To do that, all you need to do is sign up as a member. So once again, head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast and you'll see a button there that says sign up as a member and you just need to add your name and email address. It's free and you'll get immediate access to all of the transcriptions from season two. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Christy Campbell. It's great to have you on the show today. Thanks, Rebecca. It's great to be here. You are one of my many listeners and you reached out to me uh, when I announced that it was possible for people to come on the show and ask me questions live. You were one of the first people that put your hand up and said, I'd love to come on the show. So it's really great to have a real life Healthy Gut Podcast podcast listener with me today. Uh, You're a mum to a five and a seven-year-old and you're in the process of switching careers from software into health, wellness and nutrition and you've just completed a year studying holistic nutrition and you have SIBO yourself so you know firsthand what it's like to be living with this condition. I'd love for you to tell my other listeners a little bit about yourself and, and, uh, and why you've ended up coming on the show today to ask me a whole bunch of SIBO-related questions. Yes, um, thanks for that opener. So I, as you mentioned, I'm actually changing careers for, I mean, really a couple different reasons. One, my own health journey, as I've had SIBO and actually a pretty um, uh, a pretty strong case of it. Uh, I was initially diagnosed in March of 2017, so last year, and just following a lot of symptoms, going to a lot of naturopaths. I can get back to that a little bit, but basically when I was first uh, did the breath test, my hydrogen peaked at 268. So a uh, it's a case that it was so high that my naturopath hadn't seen it like that before. And it sounds like it's it's maybe the top 1% or so of, of numbers that people get. But um, before that, I've, I've had a history of antibiotic usage uh, within my childhood. I had a lot of ear infections. Um, following the birth of my first child in 2010, I ended up having a pelvic infection and um, Secondarily, my appendix was inflamed. So three weeks into having my first baby, I had to go in and have my appendix removed. I had more antibiotics after that. So it was really after that that I started seeing a naturopath. I was, I was having fatigue and brain fog and some starting some digestive symptoms. Um, and then I was seeing some improvements here and there. She was having me on some supplements. I started really working on the diet, both for myself as well as, you know, now that I was a mother, I wanted to make sure that um, my family, my, my children were growing up healthy. Well, starting with my first child in 2012, I then had my second child and um, my second child had some issues, actually some reflux uh, when he was several months old and when he was starting solids and, um, is a little bit low weight, so he was around the third percentile weight, and um, so there's some issues there that might have almost stemmed from my own issues, and yeah, the naturopath helped a fair amount, so I had some procedures like some colon hydrotherapies done and nutrient infusions, and it just felt like I was feeling a little bit better here and there, but then I had these sort of nagging symptoms coming back, so doing a lot of research on my own online, I just, I got, I got really into understanding some of the stuff and really interested in it. And 
I came across SIBO probably in 2016 and started talking to my naturopath at that point, but she wasn't uh, very familiar with the condition and she sort of continued promoting some of her own methods. And she, she was really an expert in cleansing detoxification, so continued kind of pushing from that angle, which again, as I mentioned, was helping but temporarily. So I found a new naturopath where that clinic was aware of SIBO and I got the breath test. So again, that was about a year and a half ago and found out that I did have SIBO. So I think like many people that listen on the show, the initial moment was excitement and wow, I finally know what's going on and I can finally sort of work, work on this and, and um, kind of nip this in the bud for good. But as many of you also probably have experienced, um, what, what followed then was, you know, honing in the diet. So I went on the SIBO specific diet for several months. I went on several rounds of antimicrobials. I um, then went on two rounds of rifaximin. And then I retested in August last year, and I was down to 68 hydrogen, which was pretty much a celebration for me because it felt like such a uh, improvement from the 268 that I ended up doing one more round of antimicrobials. And I I kind of decided to go into maintenance mode and take a prokinetic, but really 68 is still pretty severe SIBO. So I think in hindsight, I needed to continue on and really get that um, clear breath test as really, I think since then I've been here and there doing a couple more rounds, being more uh, restrictive, less restrictive with a diet and just wanting to kind of get back some normalcy. But I did another retest um, several months ago. I think this was back in February and it was up a little higher even in the 80s. And I ended up doing two more rounds of rifaximin and some more antimicrobials. And I haven't retested yet because, and we can maybe get into this a little bit, Rebecca, but one of the challenges, of course, is the costs around all of this. Um, I'm, I'm paying $400 a round of rifaximin. The testing is close to $300. And so I just haven't retested, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that the SIBO is still there. And uh, I'm really looking forward, as, as uh, Rebecca mentioned, actually, over the last year, I've been changing things up. So due to my own health challenges, as well as I feel like I want to turn this into um, helping other people, you know, my own struggles, once I feel like I've kind of gotten to the bottom of them and gained a lot of information around this, I really want to help other people as well. So that's why I went back to school for um, to study holistic nutrition, not only from the nutrition standpoint, but also the body, mind, spirit standpoint, is I feel like that's huge in recovery as well. And I'm really fortunate in that starting in the fall, my children will be back to school and I'll have some more time where I can really focus on self-care and just try out a lot of uh, different methods to improve digestion and continue to work on the mind-body-spirit component and um, just kind of move forward from here. Thank you for that. And it's really good to understand if we all, myself included, and all of my listeners love hearing the backstory of where somebody has been. And and uh, and it's really great to have a real life listener, a person with SIBO coming on the show today. And just a reminder for everybody else who's listening today, that this is now something you can do with the Healthy Gut Podcast. So if you would like to come onto the show, um, ask me questions live, you can totally do that. Uh, you can reach out to me, Rebecca at thehealthygut.com and let me know if you would like to come on the show. And likewise, you can also pre-record a question for me. So you can head to thehealthygut.com 
forward slash podcast and there's a little button on that podcast page that says would you like to leave a message for the show you can do so here so I really encourage other listeners to to get involved it's really fun to hear yourself on the podcast and it's a great way that, uh, for you to ask questions of myself or even leave a question for a future practitioner to answer. If I could riff on that for a second Rebecca I mean just to just to add to that I mean it, it's so good to be able to hear people's stories from my own perspective as well and just speak with people that have been through this as in it's one of the things maybe we'll talk a little bit about today but it can feel a little bit alienating just going through day-to-day life where people around me family friends you know acquaintances this is just so foreign to them and sometimes it can almost I can almost feel like you know is this actually for real you know nobody knows about this this condition and people sort of look at me like you know that's that's so odd and sometimes I get comments around you know why not just try this kind of more mainstream approach and I started almost second guessing myself like maybe I'm taking this too far but then when I actually speak with people going through it and speak with and hear from the experts it really hones in the fact that I mean it is just something that's not really mainstream and that it this is real and it's really good to hear other people's stories for sure. SIBO is definitely real and those of us that have it know it's real because we experience it, we live it, we breathe it, we suffer the symptoms from it on a daily basis. I think it's really unfortunate that there are people out there that want to question it. I think it's good that we question things because if we never questioned anything in life, we would never continue to learn or uh, find new methods or new treatments. But, um, you know, when you are suffering and when you feel unwell, just because somebody else can't see that or feel it themselves doesn't mean it's not real for you. And that can be one of the challenges of dealing with SIBO because it is a hidden condition. It's not like you can see it other than when you're really bloated, you can see that, but you can't see the bacterial overgrowth. And for many people that don't know anything about it, they think, meh, maybe it's all in her head. And that can be really challenging. And another challenge I face as well is I'm one of those people that um, loses weight on SIBO and I actually um, start from being underweight. So uh, all my life I've been underweight and I was actually teased for that growing up because I was, you know, I was the skinny kid. And now with SIBO, that's actually caused me to lose more weight. So that can be an extra challenge just again, both from a health standpoint to keep that weight on because a lot of the diets for SIBO are lower in carbs and, and it's it's really hard to balance that um, keeping symptoms down and feeling good with eating enough food and, you know, enough food that keeps weight on so I don't lose more weight. And then that's another thing that comes up in conversations with people. I constantly get that you need to gain weight and are you okay? And, and different things like that where people, people care, but it's kind of challenging to have that conversation too, where I, I, I want to kind of reassure them that I'm doing the best I can. And, you know, I'm not eating minimally. I'm not, you know, it's not a situation where, and I, I mean, this is slippery slope, I know, and I want to be sensitive saying this, but it's not a situation where I'm, you know, being orthorexic and I and I feel like foods are evil. It's just I'm literally trying to navigate all this and keep weight on, um, uh, but at the same time, be able to kind of move toward helping my condition. So it can be challenging. Mm-hmm. It can be. And there really is two camps. There's, It's very rare to hear of a person with SIBO that goes, oh, I'm so happy with what I weigh. Where There's either people that are in, the, in your camp where it's really challenging to gain weight and 
you're underweight and and quite conscious of it and people are commenting on it or you're in my camp which is it's impossible to lose weight no matter how religious and zealous you are about it and that weight just keeps piling on no matter what you do and it's really frustrating because those of us in the overweight or you're carrying too much weight camp would love to be in your camp for a week or two just to get some of it off and I'm sure you guys would love to be in our camp for a week or two to put some weight on. <laughs> Absolutely and, and I really appreciate you saying that as well as I, as I think there may be a bit of a um, I'm not sure if bias is the word, but where uh, there's more of a sense of it being okay to comment on someone's weight if they're on the underweight side, right? Whereas when someone is there and doesn't want to be as underweight as they are, it can still feel, um, you know, it can kind of feel a little bit hurtful at times, right? When you know that you want to be way more than than you do and it's hard to put that weight on. But so I appreciate that comment for sure. Mm. And I would like to also say, you know, a big congratulations on seeing such a big drop in your hydrogen numbers. That's significant in terms terms of where your numbers started and where they are today. And for many people, achieving that all clear SIBO breath test is not actually realistic. SIBO for some of us is a chronic condition that is about managing it rather than having this, you know, holy grail of the all clear breath test. And if anybody wants to hear another real life story about this, head to episode 72 with Sharon Treadgold. She joined me um, in, I think she was episode 52, I'll have to check that, uh, where she shared her story originally and she's come back to give us an update and she talks a lot about, uh, you know, this holy grail of a negative breath test. Yes, Sharon Treadgold originally spoke to me on episodes 52 and then check her out on episode 72. And for the SIBO docs that are, you know, dealing with the more chronic cases, it's often about, you know, helping their patients with the mindset of this we can get really fixated on thinking everything will be great when I get that all clear breath test. And instead, what I think is more important for us to focus on is how am I feeling? Because we can be feeling significantly better despite what the numbers on our SIBO breath test say. And if all we do is pin our hopes on that negative breath test to the exclusion of everything else, we can set ourselves up for failure. And so, uh, and Sharon talks about this. Sharon has had chronic long-term SIBO. Uh, She has had breath tests where her numbers jumped right up despite the fact she was feeling significantly better. And in episode 72, she comes back to tell us, okay, well, this this is where I'm at today. And just around how she had to make peace with the fact she may never get a negative breath test. I've had to make peace with the fact that I am, I now know, a relapsing SIBO patient because I have um, quite significant adhesions all throughout my body, particularly in my abdominal cavity. Uh, They're wrapping all around my stomach, my liver, they're pulling on my diaphragm. My small intestine itself is completely wrapped up and all twisted. And I've got a huge mass of the size of a head of broccoli where my appendix came out. Um, My uterus is frozen in one place because it's so adhered. So because I now know this, I now know that SIBO relapses are going to be part of my picture until at whatever point in the future, all of these adhesions and scar tissues and constrictions have been broken down through uh, visceral um, 
mobilization therapy, which I'm having with Alyssa Tate. And so for me, the picture is, okay, well, this is about managing SIBO rather than the holy grail of a zero breath test. And I relapsed. Um, I realized at the beginning of uh, 2018 that I had relapsed because my symptoms had flared up again and my breath test came back and I had much higher numbers than I'd had previously when I was first diagnosed and the inflammation in my body is really apparent and so it's very clear that, you know, it is around a long-term strategy which uh, is very different for my mindset than what I was in the early days because in the early days I was of the mindset type A, classic type A personality of I'm going to do this the best, the fastest, the quickest, the hardest. I'm going to be the perfect patient. I'll never cheat. I'll never go off plan and I'll be done with this in record record speed time and my naturopath will be so proud of me because no one will have ever done it as good as me and I've really had to work on that mindset with myself because it's very difficult as a type A personality to come to terms with the fact that you can't just control it through willpower and brute force alone, that sometimes you've got to come to terms and acceptance that your body has a condition. I've got multiple conditions where I have to learn to live in conjunction with them and come to peace with them rather than trying to be in control Mm -hmm. at all times. I definitely resonate with that. I mean, I would say I'm a type A as well. You know, (laughs) I like to focus on results and and kind of know like, I got this. And uh, I think you're right though. I mean, in a lot of cases it is, it it ends up being chronic and you're absolutely right. That is all about how you feel. And I mean, I certainly know that there's days I feel like I have a lot of energy. I feel really, really connected to those around me, connected with my kids. I have, you know, I'm, I'm in a great mood and really in tune and then the days where whether it's something I've eaten that didn't just that didn't agree with me or whatever the case may be perhaps something's dying off you know there could be a lot of things going on where it's just I'm irritable and I'm brain foggy and one day my my daughter was laughing at me because I couldn't think of the word for a lid I asked her to remove the hat from a jar and I mean I got it right that it was a thing on top of a thing but it was a lid right so I mean brain fog can be pretty intense at times so I I think for me um, I'm also working on uh, vagus nerve nerve stimulation. I know that can be a big connection between gut and brain. And I'm just doing different things sort of peripheral to the main SIBO treatment just to improve my body's digestion and work on the gut-brain connection at a larger le- level. Because I think you're right, it's going to end up being something that I need to maintain and be cognizant of. But I just want to work at and be at a point where more days than, than not, I can have that good level of um, energy and connection and be in tune with my surroundings and not feel like I'm this big foggy bubble because almost in a sense that for me is more challenging than digestive symptoms I have is it could be really having it could be really hard in particular with children to feel really foggy when you need to sort of be on your game and be connected you don't want to be snapping at everybody around you right so um yeah but that I resonate with what you said there for sure yeah and given that you've had you had your appendix removed you've had Mm -hmm. the pelvic inflammation infection Mm -hmm. have you been assessed for adhesions so I I have actually I I went to an individual now it's it's not it wasn't their specialty per se but it's one of the modes that they offered was some visceral manipulation so I had a couple treatments done Um, it wasn't any kind of a really comprehensive I know with Elisa Tate 
and you had another individual on where they really focus on a, a lengthy treatment for adhesion specifically. So it wasn't like that. I just had a little bit of visceral manipulation work where the practitioner mentioned a little bit of tightness. So that is definitely something on my mind is maybe I need a little bit more work in that area given, you know, I had my appendix removed and I could have adhesions. So something is, is in my back pocket as uh, potentially something to investigate more thoroughly, perhaps at a bit of a later date. For sure. And I, a common picture I see with people like yourself and myself is where we have had inflammation through infection and also where there has been surgery is that adhesions are um, very commonly a piece of our puzzle. And adhesions are caused it's natural, it's scar tissue. The body is laying down scar tissue because there's been an incision as there is with surgery or there has been inflammation as there is with SIBO or other types of infections. And I think it's, I think for many of us, it is really important that we get under the hands of somebody that does know their stuff when it comes to abdominal or whole body adhesions, and particularly if, if they can have a focus around gut health. Um, in North America, the team that do Clear Passage, and I interviewed Larry and Belinda Wern on the podcast, and I'll just check what, uh, what episode number that was, which I can't think off the top of my head. Um, and they really talk a lot about what adhesions actually are and how they're caused. Um, and I know for myself and many of my coaching clients that adhesions are a piece of our puzzle. So that's episode 26 if you want to go and listen to Larry and Belinda Wern. And if you want to listen to Alyssa Tate, who's the incredible woman that is now treating me, that's episode 33. And one of the reasons why adhesions I think are such a vital piece of the puzzle for many of us is that if our body is restricted in its ability to move optimally and that's what adhesions do they constrict us and they restrict this free-flowing movement SIBO recurrence will be part of our picture also hard to treat SIBO. So perhaps SIBO that doesn't seem to be responding well to the treatments or each round of treatment, it can be because there's actually no opportunity for the body to flush through those uh, overgrown bacteria and to try and restore balance because it it's just stuck. It can't move. And Sharon Treadgold, uh, you know, my, my coaching client who's come on twice now, shares her own journey with visceral mobilization. And she credits that in particular as being a major key for her in regaining so much of her health. When she started her journey with SIBO, she was really unwell. And today, uh, after having um, regular visceral mobilization and um, sort of whole body treatments, uh, she feels it has been a significant key to her recovery. And I can see that with the work that Alyssa Tate is doing on my body, and sadly, we don't live anywhere near each other. I, I have to fly to see her and stay overnight. Uh, so it's a real, you know, I, I really, it's a big investment for me from a time and a financial perspective. Um, but just having somebody that deeply knows their stuff, put their hands on you and be like, Whoa, that's really interesting. And something that I'll share with my with my most recent experience with Alyssa was I had 
Um, I have this kind of grumbling feeling in the lower right-hand side of my abdominal area. And as a kid, I was told, oh, you've got a grumbling appendix. One day we'll have to take it out. Sure enough, they took it out. It was completely inflamed and rupturing as they got me on the operating table. Um, But this sensation I've had for years, I think I've had this feeling, you know, most of my life. When Alyssa started working on the adhesion in that area or the adhesions in that area, it immediately gave me that sensation. And I said to Alyssa, oh, that's the feeling I get when I eat something that disagrees with me. And she said, well, no, it's your adhesion pulling and causing that sensation. Sure, when food is passing through, it might trigger it, uh, but it's not necessarily a food reaction. It's the constriction caused by your adhesions. And I was like, ah, oh, <laughs> that's so interesting. I've been blaming food for how I feel when in fact it's got nothing to do with food, really. It's my adhesions. And she was also doing some work on my stomach. So we had, I flew up, uh, she treated me in the afternoon. I then stayed in an Airbnb near, nearby. I went and had some dinner and uh, and then I was with her the following morning and you know, the next morning she said, how did you feel last night? And I said, yeah, I felt okay. I was a bit wiped out, um, but I had a really bad stitch Uh, after eating dinner and she said okay where did you feel that and I said oh just under my left rib cage so where your stomach sits Um, I said I get that quite a lot actually I always have a stitch up there and and I was like hmm I bet you're going to tell me that's not a stitch it's an adhesion and she said well let me have a feel and so she started to feel around and she was like okay this is really interesting you've got this big kind of Uh, massive adhesions that are pulling your stomach and liver apart. So your stomach and liver should be quite close to each other, but separated and able to move around freely. And it's important that they're working optimally because they've got a role to do with each other. And she said, instead, what's happening in your, what I can feel is that these adhesions are kind of pulling or yanking your stomach to one side. They're yanking your liver to another side. So when you're eating and you're putting food into the stomach, you know, not only is it in a wrong position, but the liver's not quite aligned as it should be. And that's triggering this stitch sensation. So it's absolutely fascinating being under the hands of somebody that can really feel what's going on in the body and start to stretch and release some of these constrictions. So um, that was a very long-winded way of saying adhesions really are an important piece of the puzzle for people. And I had no idea I had them until I saw Larry Wern speak and I thought, that sounds like me. So even if you want to learn more about what adhesions are, go and check out Larry and Belinda Wern's interview in episode 26, because that was such a big light bulb moment for me. I honestly had tears in my eyes the first time I heard Larry mm-hmm. Wern speak. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's maybe encouraged me that it might be a good idea to do a little bit of traveling as it's, it's not, um, these practitioners are not all over the place, right? You might need to travel a little bit further to see someone that really knows what they're doing. But in the end, it's probably very worth it if that's one of the contributing factors. It is. And my approach is, you know, I'm not flushed with money. I wish that I had a tree that grew money and I could just spend everything I wanted to on my health, but that's that not realistic. <laughs> yeah. So what I do now is after years and years and years of spending all of this time and money looking for 
answers. My approach now is I'm going to invest in my health with the top people. And if that means I have to travel to see them, so be it, because I will ultimately spend less money and less time by being under the care of someone that truly knows their stuff. And that's why I now will will fly two states away to see Elicitate. When I'm in the US, I do plan on having some treatment with Clear Passage. Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm really invested in getting well and I'm really invested in not spending a life on antimicrobials or antibiotics. And to do that, I need to address my adhesions because until I address them, I will keep relapsing with SIBO. And I don't think that ultimately any of us should spend a lifetime killing bacteria because it's just too early in our knowledge of what those drugs and antimicrobials are truly doing to our microbiome. And I don't want to inadvertently be doing more damage by by killing off some of the good guys as well. So absolutely, I'm not keen on that approach either. I mean, I've already, it's a year and a half in and I feel like I'm already wondering what I might've done. You know, in addition to SIBO, I feel like I could have issues with with candida as well. I have symptoms around that. So it's just, I'm, I'm kind of with you where I'm very hesitant to go through additional rounds, which is why I'm really interested in root cause analysis and approach, looking at some of those approaches at this point. Definitely. Now you've got a couple of questions that you wanted to ask me. So fire away. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we already, I believe, talked a little bit about this, but I, I'd love to hear any thoughts you have on just the conversations that you have with people unrelated to SIBO. So your day-to-day life outside of, um, you know, this element of your career when you're speaking with friends and family, how do the conversations tend to go, especially if it's someone that maybe you haven't seen in some time and so they might not know um, what your, your recent health journey? How do you go about approaching it? Do you have sort of an elev- you know, quote-unquote elevator pitch that you use to describe what SIBO is and kind of the approach that you're using, given it isn't something that's mainstream. Yeah, I just would love to hear a little bit more about that as I have a lot of these conversations in my life myself. And sometimes I think, you know, I might, someone's eyes start glazing over when I start talking about SIBO or, you know, they're kind of looking at me like, what the heck are you talking about? So I'd love to hear how you approach it with people that aren't familiar uh, with SIBO. That's a good question, hey? I've got loads more just like this coming up after this break. We're back in a moment. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Thank you. 
So I'd love to hear how you approach it with people that aren't familiar uh, with SIBO. Well, most people these days in my circle know what I'm doing because of it's been such a massive transformation. So I'll reflect back on three and a half years ago when I first discovered I had SIBO because that's probably a bit more uh, appropriate in terms of having those conversations. And um, what I have experienced is that nearly everybody that I speak to either has gut problems themselves or know somebody that does. And so I will generally say in back in the day before everyone was like, oh, Rebecca, and she's doing everything around SIBO, um, is that I would say, you know, I've, I've recently discovered that I've got this condition that has been making me feel sick for a really long time. And people would be like, oh, what's that? And I'd say, well, it's called SIBO. It stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And people would be like, ah. And I'd say, have you ever heard of IBS or irritable bowel syndrome? And most people say, yeah, I've got that. Or yeah, my partner has that. And I'd say, well, that's basically what it is. Because most people that have IBS actually have SIBO. And at that point in time, if somebody has a personal experience with gut problems, they lean in and they say, tell me more because I've been having t problems with my guts or my tummy um, or my stomach, however they describe it, for a long time and I'm a bit frustrated with it. Or people will say, that's nice, and then you move on to the next conversation. Um if somebody does have an interest, which I find most people do, they're actually really interested to hear more because they don't feel well. They want to know how they could do something about it. And I'll talk a little bit about, you know, I'll say, well, what, how do you feel? What are some of your symptoms? And I'll talk about the classic symptoms that people present with with SIBO and then I'll tell them you know hey I've got this great naturopath you know I'm more than happy to give you her details if you would like to go and make an appointment or there's an online quiz you can do on SIBOtest.com which gives you an indication of the likelihood of you having SIBO so that's often a really great start for them because they can be like oh my gosh it's come back as highly likely that I've got SIBO and you can say, well, you could do something about that now. Um, and in fact, I was actually, uh, I had a, a day out with a, um, for a girlfriend's 40th on the weekend. And I was, we had a bus taking us down to, um, you know, an area about an hour out of Melbourne, Australia, where I live. And I was sitting next to this girl and she said, what do you do for work? And I was telling her about the healthy gut. And she was like, oh, I've had gut problems ever since I got a really bad food poisoning incident when I was traveling overseas. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> so I brought up the quiz on SIBOtest.com and I said, here, you could do this and it will give you an indication of how likely SIBO is for you. And it came back as highly likely and I said well here's my card you know get in touch if you want me to help you put you in turn in the hands of the right people um, you don't have to feel like this any longer you can do something about it um, the other thing I found was so in the early days of SIBO diagnosis I was so excited that I finally had an answer that I wanted to tell everybody because I felt like this was a hidden secret and everybody needed to know. And I became a little bit obsessed <laughs> and I talked to everybody about it. And I did have to have an awakening of sorts where I thought, okay, Rebecca, not everybody is going to be as interested in this as you are. So 
do your elevator pitch around, I've found out I've got this thing, it's basically IBS, but it's the underlying cause of IBS. Um, And if they're interested, then you can go into more detail. If they're not, shut up. Don't talk to them about it because they're not interested. And that really helped me to just gauge the interest of conversation. And once I started to feel a lot better, I started to look a lot better. Um, People could really see that this was having a really positive and profound impact on me. And then that was like a second wave of interest where people were coming to me and saying, what are you doing I want to do what you're doing because you look amazing and I want to look like you do. So that was really interesting that just me living and breathing my SIBO world um, created a whole bunch more interest. It led to a whole bunch of my friends being diagnosed with SIBO because they realized that not only could they find out what it was, but they could do something about it and they too could feel better. Um, And so it was like this uh, kind of ripple effect where my diagnosis has helped a lot of people in my immediate circle of friends to regain their health too, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. That is great. Um, I think what you said about really honing in on linking it to IBS makes sense, is even though SIBO isn't 100% of the ongoing, or sorry, the underlying cases of IBS, since it's such a high percentage, I know there's sort of argument around what the exact number is, but um, most people have heard of IBS, or like you mentioned, even experienced some symptoms because it's more of a, it is a mainstream type of a diagnosis. So I think I, moving forward, I'll use that more when I when I speak to people about it. And I think what you mentioned as well about people gaining interest because you started to look and feel better and have more energy and whatnot. I mean, that's, uh, that's great to hear, first of all, as well. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that you, you got to that point. And I feel like I've had periods where I feel like I'm getting there. You know what I mean? But I feel like my sort of um, getting to that place where I feel like, okay, I, I'm, I'm really on my way is, is coming up still. And I know that I'll get there. Um, and I think for me, it, some of it will be the ability to put on some of those those pounds that I lost because I am at a point now where I am quite underweight and that's a little bit striking for people. So I think that when they see like, okay, you know, she's put some weight on, she has some energy, then that's those sort of second type rounds of conversation will, will come where I can really then speak to, um, you know, what kind of helped take me, um, you know, take me through the path and help help find some better health in the end is I still feel like I'm kind of midway through that that journey at this point. An option for people in your situation, and I don't know if you've looked at this with your practitioner, is using the elemental diet as a way to add in extra calories into your body without having to physically eat food. And Sharon Treadgold, this, you know, the client that I've said go and listen to her, she has used that as a strategy um, because she became quite underweight as well. So that can be a great way, and I know it's discussed as an option amongst SIBO practitioners when I attend the SIBO docs conferences is for underweight SIBO patients really utilizing the elemental diet as supplementation for calories rather than just mm. being a liquid only diet for people. So that right. could be something to Right, because that's probably not recommended on its own, right? Well, it's interesting. For some underweight patients, they gain weight when they do the elemental diet because it's a calculated calorie intake. And for some people, drinking is so much easier than eating. So they do see people gaining weight with SIBO rather than um, losing weight. 
Some people lose it because they don't like the taste of it, so they don't like drinking it. Um, But for some people, they can actually put some weight on. Mm -hmm. I've looked into that a little bit, and I think there might be some challenges around obtaining that here in Canada, but I'm going to look into that a little bit more as I believe it might be something that a naturopath can can bring into their office. I'm going to have to confirm, but um, I I mean, I could do it. I'm certainly the type that's committed to, if I felt like something would make a difference, I could definitely go through it, but I'm also very much a foodie, and um, I'm one of the types that um, I I live to eat, you know, rather than the other way around, so um, it would be, you know, it would be a hard period, but I could definitely get through it. But I do love my food. And I think that's actually uh, an interesting bridge into um, one of the questions I had around um, kind of more social occasions and and just enjoying life, right? And I mean, I certainly enjoy the food that I that I make at home that is SIBO-friendly food. And, you know, when I'm able to control it, um, I love soups. You know, I love just kind of making basic foods with, you know, friendly sauces and whatnot. But then when I go to social occasions and all this delicious food is there, um, I was kind of curious to get your, if you're good with moving on to the next question, I'm kind of curious about getting your take on how you or how you hear other people navigate situations where there's food that might not fit right within your current dietary plan. As I'll, I'll kind of go one of, of two ways. Sometimes I, I won't eat the food. Sometimes I'll kind of make food around it. But because I'm such a person that loves food and, you know, I just I want to just you know, experience that situ- that full social, you know, experience, then sometimes I'll say, okay, I'm going to eat the food here. And sometimes it goes okay. And sometimes I regret it a little bit. I'm kind of curious your own thoughts on um, how you navigate those scenarios. Do you, do you kind of worry about really being very, um, making sure you don't color outside the lines of the diet that you're on? Or do you sometimes kind of allow yourself some cheats? That's another one of my questions is how you navigate some of those situations in life. When you go eating out, are you eating at friends' houses or is it more going to restaurants? Um, there's both. And I think restaurants are often easier because then I have more choices. I can pick something like, you know, a grilled chicken breast and a side of vegetables, something like that. That'll work. It's more when I go to someone's house and they have a beautiful spread there. And I just sometimes go, oh, I just want to eat that and I'm going to enjoy it. And I do have, it's a bit of a, maybe a, maybe an internal struggle, I guess you can say, where um, it, and it's, it's not always just though that I want to enjoy the food. There's also that element of, well, you know, I need to keep weight on. So that's kind of on my mind too. And I think, well, you know, I am going to try some of this here and see how it goes. And it's like sometimes kind of color outside the lines there. Um, so it's, I'd say it's more to answer your question directly, um, social occasions at friends or family um, homes where they've, they've made the food, where I sometimes will color outside the lines. So I'll talk about eating out at a restaurant or a cafe and then I'll talk about going to somebody's house. So my the one of the things I talk a lot about with my SIBO coaching program is how to live life with SIBO. And we talk about managing going out and having a life. It's really important that we still live life. And if one of the things that we love to do is eating out, then doing it in a way that we can still enjoy it despite the fact that we've got SIBO. So my tactics for eating out in a restaurant or a cafe are one, go online and check out their menu so you can start to get a sense of what type of food they serve. And then secondly, calling them. Chefs are much happier to know they've got someone with a dietary requirement coming in than for you to arrive and be like, oh, hey, I'm here and now here's all the things I can't eat. So calling them, speaking to the restaurant manager or the chef, talking to them about the foods that you can eat. I find it's easier to tell them what you can eat rather than, you know, 
doing the long list of what you can't because they just get overwhelmed with that. Um, but if there are really key things you can't eat, so if you know onion and garlic just sends you into a massive flare, um, tell them that. Uh, but I would say, okay, so the things I can eat is I can eat all sorts of protein. I'm pretty good with all of the veggies, but I can't do potatoes. Um, I'm not eating onion and garlic at the moment, so I need it to be free. Or I'll say, you know, low fructose or low FODMAP if they know what that means. Um, and I find then that that takes a lot of the stress and anxiety away from turning up at that establishment because I know I've already pre-warned them. And then when I arrive, most of the time the server will say, now I know we've got someone with a dietary requirement. Who is that? And I'll say, that's me. And they'll say, the chef has organized X, Y, and Z for you. Here's the food that we're going to be serving you today or tonight. And it means that I don't have to be that annoying person with the group of people uh, because I've already pre-organised the dinner out. Um, I often will recommend that I book the the venue that we go to because it gives me the opportunity to <laughs> type A personality, take control <laughs> and speak to the chef. Um, there's been one time, my friends were amazing when I was in my strict uh, in my first round of SIBO and I was being super strict and they were really accommodating. They said, I'd, you know, they said to me, we'd much rather you choose the restaurant, Rebecca, because then we don't have to think about it. We know that you've sorted it. Uh, there was one time when I couldn't do that and the person had organized this dinner in an Italian restaurant and it was a pizza restaurant and it was, it was pretty much all pizza on the menu. And I called ahead and spoke to the um, staff and they were like, oh gosh, we're, we really are a pizza restaurant. But what was amazing was that they still wanted me to have a good experience. So they ordered in some additional food that they wouldn't normally stock and they made me a meal so that I could still go out to this dinner and, um, and have a really great time. So that was, that was really cool that, that that restaurant were that accommodating. Um, when it comes to eating with family and friends or going to somebody's house, um, what I will often do is I'll offer to take a plate. So I'll say, what are you making? I mean, I'm going to, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to bring something that I can eat. Uh, I'm on a restricted diet at the moment and I don't want to put the hassle on you. So I will bring something that I know I can tolerate. What I've found is a lot of people get quite overwhelmed because when you say, okay, well, here's what I am eating and they're like, I have no idea how to make food in that world, um, they then think it's all too hard, I don't know what to do, overwhelm, overwhelm. Whereas when you offer to take a plate, it just takes the anxiety away from them. Now, some people are really interested to learn more, often the people that have their own gut problems. And this is a great opportunity where you could, say, send them some recipes from my website, thehealthygut.com forward slash recipes. I have a heap of SIBO-friendly recipes there. And you could send them a link to one of my recipes and say, I love this, it's delicious, and it doesn't cause me any troubles. If you made me this, I would be super happy. Or you could send them my cookbook, for instance, and they could pick some recipes out of that. I love your butter chicken, by the way, I have to say. It's so good. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a really a great recipe. Season. 
Yeah, it's a what's one of my favorites. Um Again, it really depends on the level of interest of the person. Uh, but I have found 9.9 times out of 10 people, if if you have a relationship with these people, they really genuinely want you to feel better and want it and care for you. And so they are willing to help meet you in the middle so that you can have a good experience as well. And the other thing I've found is when I take a plate, you know, I pick the food that I know is really delicious, regardless of it being a SIBO meal, because I like to show people that a modified diet doesn't have to be bland and boring. And I will take a plate and people will be like, oh my gosh, that is delicious. And I'm like, yeah, it is delicious and it's SIBO friendly (laughs) and you can Mm -hmm. eat really good food and still be treating your gut really well. And so I use it as a little bit of education for people as well. I really like to show people that good food can taste great on a SIBO diet. Your recipes are amazing. They're (laughs) very flavorful. Yeah, I think there's one thing that I, that I, a little bit of personal work that I need to continue working on is just being a little bit more direct in certain scenarios. Like you mentioned, calling the restaurant ahead of time versus kind of going and just sort of, okay, I I do look at, I will look at the menu ahead of time as an example and think, okay, that's probably safe. But doing that call just to make sure the dish is safe, that there aren't sort of hidden ingredients I'm not aware of and things like that. I think I'm, I'm the type that doesn't like to, even though I'm, um, I kind of type A and you, you know, I focus on quality and all these types of things. I I'm, I'm also non-confrontational. I don't love kind of being a scenario where I feel like I'm putting someone out. So, I, but I think in this case, it, it does make sense to really just call ahead, like in the case of a restaurant or just to, just to double check. So I'm not just, you know, stepping my health back in the interest of, you know, keeping the peace or what have you. So that's, that's a good tip. And for those that those people that don't like being confrontational, calling ahead and speaking to the restaurant means you're actually not being confrontational because you give them the opportunity to be prepared and organised. Whereas when you turn up unannounced and the chef doesn't know that you're coming, that's when it can actually be more of a challenge and the staff will be like, oh, uh, I need to go speak to the kitchen. Um, Oh, gosh. You know, we've marinated all of our meat and garlic. There's nothing we've got for you. So it actually avoids confrontation by being organised and prepared and calling ahead. So, yeah, it really does. It eases the stress and the anxiety of eating out significantly because when you arrive and they know you're coming you're just like everybody else you don't have to make a song and dance about you know going through each item on the menu and trying to work out what you can and can't eat yeah yeah that's a great tip yeah what else do you have for me uh so uh as we discussed earlier, I, I'm a mom. I have two kids who are ages seven and five. And uh, that that creates some interesting discussions as um, someone that's, you know, cares about raising my children with real food and, you know, having them first of all experience how yummy real food is and, and you know, their natural flavors and not just sort of the very processed foods that are, you know, assaulting the taste buds with strong, you know, strong flavors. So my kids have eaten really well and they've eaten... Um, They've eaten 
quite well with real foods since pretty much day one, which is great. Um, an interesting topic of conversation I have with them is, you know, these foods are good foods for you, but not so much good foods for mom right now. So kind of navigating these conversations around, um, you know, you guys enjoy the apple and this beautiful peach that's seasonal and juicy and delicious. Um, no, no, thank you. Mom's not going to have that because that's a little harder on my tummy can be an interesting conversation. I think, I mean, they're very perceptive children. So I think that they sort of get that I'm just in a bit of a situa- different situation than they are right now. But it does feel sometimes like that. Um, there's a bit of an interesting, in- interesting divide where I'm saying these are healthy foods, but not always healthy foods. It's a bit of a subtle concept for, for young children. Uh, I know that you, you don't have children yourself, but I'm curious if you've um, spoken with others with SIBO that have young children and how they might, um, you know, navigate these types of conversations or scenarios with their kids. You're right. I don't have kids, so I can't speak firsthand from this, but I'm absolutely passionate about the messages we send ourselves and others around food. And I've got a great uh, podcast interview that I did with uh, Diane Ryan around our approach to disordered eating and SIBO. And, And disordered eating and SIBO is sadly going hand in hand. And for anyone that's interested in listening to that, that's episode 71. And it's something that I realized that from a very young age, I've been very disordered in my eating because I've had tummy troubles for so long that I have always viewed food as the enemy. I think with kids where, you know, they've got no discernible digestive issues, I think it's around saying things like mummy's tummy hurts when I eat apples or pears. You know, apples and pears are delicious. They're amazing. They're great. You guys, it's so great. Your tummies don't hurt. Um, Mummy looks forward to the time when she can eat them because the goal is to be able to eat apples and pears and, you know, all variety of foods and working towards being able to introduce that. Um, One of my concerns with the way SIBO diets are written and the language used is words like avoid or illegal. I think they're very damaging psychologically to us because they make us very fearful of these foods and they are not bad foods. I don't think we should be going going out and eating McDonald's, but I do think we should be eating freshly grown pears and apples and onion and garlic because they're really good for our gut when our gut is balanced. Um, So, and and the other thing about food is, um, you know, you had a question for me in the previous question just around how strict I am or am not. In the early days for me, I was super strict because I would, you know, that type A personality was in full force. I got the SIBO biphasic diet handout and that's all I followed. I was zealous with it. I take a very different approach now. I now work with Dr. Jason Horolek, who has a real specialty in the broader microbiome. And his approach is actually to get people eating as broadly as they can and not to restrict their foods. He doesn't like restricting foods at all at any point in the SIBO diet unless symptoms are really strong. And so I now eat onion and garlic and apples and pears and all those types of foods that would normally cause problems. And I started out by just having really small amounts. So I might have like a half a clove of garlic in an entire dish that might be a four to six serve dish just to get 
a hint of it. Um, it might be having literally a slice or a bite of an apple or a pear just to start the process of reintroduction. Um, because the foods that we eat are designed to help alleviate our symptoms. The diet alone won't um, cause us to eradicate our SIBO. We need to address the motility issue in order for the SIBO to be gone. So I personally, these days, and that's a big change from where I was, I personally don't think that we should be restricting our diets unless we absolutely need to. Because what I see with the people that I deal with is those of us that have been on very restricted diets for a long period of time end up being very, very sensitive to a lot of foods. And it takes a lot longer and a lot more effort and a lot more symptoms to reintroduce food. So, you know, it's best not to restrict if you don't need to. Um, and so for you, it might be a case of, okay, well, what foods do I feel comfortable trying to reintroduce? And can we do this as a family? Can we talk about mummy's, mummy's having a bite of your apple today? And, you know, mummy's tummy's really looking forward to it. And, you know, showing your kids that they're, you're not approaching food with fear, but that you're, you're working towards getting that food back in and involving them. So, you know, how big should mummy's bite of the apple be today, kids? And, you know, getting them to participate in it as well. And kids are incredibly perceptive. They know when mum's not feeling great and, you know, they will be excited for you to see that you're able to eat, say, a quarter of an apple uh, or have a bite of a banana if you can't tolerate banana. So, Yeah, yeah, I resonate with a lot of what you said there. Um, you know, as someone who has just finished, you know, you're studying holistic nutrition, as well as listening to the podcast you had with a, a couple different nutritionists, I, I fully, you know, appreciate that the goal here, and as again, someone that loves food, I, I, I fully appreciate that restriction is, is if anything, it's a short-term thing to manage symptoms. And I love food. And I, and I think that's one of the challenges I have too, where, you know, it's peach season right now in Ontario and, you know, I want to have a little peach. So I, so I will have a little, a little bit of the peach. And I also appreciate what you said about Dr. Horlick and, and uh, what um, his research. And I totally understand about the importance of uh, you know, feeding your overall microbiome. So I think that's where I'm trying to kind of sort out where that gray area is. And do I have this bite now? And, or, you know, or do I have this and this other thing? And I think what I might sometimes do is go a little bit overboard. So I'll have a little bit of a period where I'm more restrictive and I'm, you know, my symptoms are managed more. I'm feeling a little better, clearer in the head. And then I'll, I'll think, okay, I want to try that peach and I'll try a little bit of that peach. And maybe I think, okay, that went all right. And then, then an hour later, I'll try this other thing. And maybe two hours later, I'll think like, I feel great. I'm going to try this other thing. And I might then have too many things that I'm trying that I haven't had for a while in one day. And then boom, the next day or two, I'm feeling really off and I'm not sure which item might have set it off. So then my instinct is to go, okay, I got to ratchet back and kind of go back to all the, you know, all the basics again, when maybe it's just um, more of a, let's structure this. And I start from what I feel like I can handle better. Today, it's going to be a peach and I'm not going to have anything, you know, not whole peach, but maybe a, peach, a slice of a peach. Two days later, I'll see. I'll see how I feel and at that point maybe introduce something because I think that's one of my challenges too is I, I'll throw too many things into the mix and then not know what maybe set me off. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> yeah, and food reintroduction is it should be slow and methodical. 
So my advice around reintroducing food is to try one new thing per day. So like you said, if you have multiple new things in a day, it's very difficult to know whether that thing has agreed with you or not because you might have had three or four new things. So my approach is, let's say it's a Monday, uh, eating food that you know you can handle, it doesn't cause symptoms, that you're totally fine with it, and then adding one new thing. And that one new thing, it doesn't need to be an entire serve, it could literally be a mouthful, a spoonful, a quarter serve. Something a, a small serve so that if there is a reaction to it, you haven't put a huge volume into your body. Um, then having a break on the Tuesday, let your body deal with that new food. Uh, it will also give your body time to demonstrate any symptoms if they're coming because it can take a couple of days for symptoms to show up. On the Wednesday, if you have felt okay on the Monday and Tuesday, then trying that food again. So if there have been zero symptoms, then you might want to try a little bit more. So let's say you had one mouthful, next time you have two mouthfuls. And then again, watch and measure and see how you go. And just trying that one new food in that day. Again, don't add an additional new food. On the Thursday, have another break, see how your body's coping because it's now had two exposures to this new food. By Thursday, you might start to feel symptoms if it's not going so well in your body or you may still feel great. And then on the Friday, go again, try it again. And if you haven't had major symptoms, you might go for three mouthfuls this time instead of the two. If you have had some symptoms, maybe back off and go back to one mouthful and see if it's just the quantity that you need to drop it back rather than the food itself. So it can feel really slow and very methodical, but this is the best way to bring food in because you then truly know how your body is coping. And you might be like, oh, Rebecca, that means I've only had one new food come in for the week. But if it's successful, you've got one new food in for the week that you didn't have the previous week. So it's, it's slow and steady wins the race. And this is a lifetime. It's not a sprint. We're running a very long marathon. And if we can give our bodies the time to process, to digest, to learn how to deal with that new food again, then ultimately in six months time when we've been able to introduce, let's say you've got 20 or 30 new foods in, well, that's fantastic because that's 20 or 30 foods you didn't have and you're able to eat them without problems and you know exactly what your limits are. Um, I, I also talk about the bucket. So how full is your bucket? And if you start and you're, you're already quite inflamed, you're, let's say you've got a histamine issue going on as well, and then you have this new food, it can be like tipping the bucket over so the bucket starts overflowing and it's not that food necessarily it's just that your bucket was too full so when you start reintroducing food it's also important to do it at a time when you're feeling good don't do it at a time when you feel like you're really flared because if you're in a really flared state well it's probably going to cause an extra flare when you bring this new food in. So do it on a day where you feel calm and relaxed and and the inflammation is low and the symptoms are under control uh, because you'll generally have more success doing it that way. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, despite the fact that I do eat on the whole very, very well, a very whole foods, um, healthy diet and a lot of focus on gut healing. One thing I have not done to date is really, really just start from a very start, really maintain. I did it. I should say I didn't. I shouldn't say I didn't do this, but at the beginning when I was treating SIBO, I did go on the SIBO-specific diet pretty um, uh, pretty firmly for three months. But since then, I've kind of been all over the map. So one thing I'm going to do starting in the fall, again, when I have a little bit more time when my children are back to school, is I've decided to actually try out the GAPS diet. Not sure your level of familiarity with that, but I read the corresponding book, and it's really all about um, healing and sealing the gut lining and um, uh rectifying a case of dysbiosis you could have. So whether it's candida or SIBO or what could be going on there, I just, because I feel like I could have some other things going on too. Um, it, it really is a pretty regimented framework where you you start very limited, but you kind of slowly add things in over a period of time, which is very similar to what you just said, where it's, and then you can really see once you introduce something, you need to kind of give it a certain period of time before introducing the next thing. So the framework naturally lends itself to that. Um, so I'm kind of really looking forward to doing something like that, where I can then feel like I'm now I'm really listening to my body and I'm not just kind of throwing more things at it because I want to because this food looks good and just kind of really committing again. And I think that that'll be really helpful in my my healing journey. For sure. And I, I think the gap start can be really great. Um, when we have SIBO present, the gas that the critters are producing is naturally damaging the lining of the gut. So the fir- in the first instance, it really is about reducing the bacterial overgrowth because you can spend a lot of energy and effort trying to heal the gut lining, but if SIBO remains present, it just keeps damaging it. So that's why the reduction of the overgrowth is such an important first step and that gut healing often comes second because you can't really do true gut healing complete gut healing when SIBO is still punching holes in the gut lining through all of the gas that's being produced. Um, The other thing I'll just say about the GAPS diet is that it wasn't designed specifically for SIBO. So the diets that have been designed specifically with SIBO in mind are the SIBO-specific gut food guide by Dr. Alison Seebecker, which resulted in Dr. Narala Jacobi producing the SIBO biphasic diet. They're the two diets that have been designed for SIBO, along with Dr. Mark Pimentel's Cedar Sinai diet, which is quite different. Um, The other diets like GAPS, uh, SCD, low FODMAP have been designed with other conditions in mind, but can be used for SIBO. So just just bear that in mind because there can be some foods that they say to eat on those diets that actually can aggravate symptoms with SIBO. Mm-hmm. I'm going to leave the onion and the garlic out at the like the really high FODMAP foods, and I'm going to be careful with uh, the chicken broths because I know that if you, especially if you use the cartilage in there, that that can be result in a high FODMAP broth. So I'm going to make some amendments to it. I just feel like it, it's been really resonating with me as, especially given I've been through sort of a year and a half of trying to antimicrobial knock the numbers down, and I've made a lot of progress there. It sort of resonates with me at this point, but it's you know everyone's different, everyone's situation is different, absolutely, and totally agree with you that the first step needs to be sort of knocking down those numbers to a you know pretty manageable low amount or you're just going to be fighting uphill if you're trying to heal your gut and all the you know all the bacteria is in the wrong place so um, but yeah thanks for adding to that yeah for sure and just something that you've said there which I think is really important where you said it's really resonating with you 
it's so important that we listen to our bodies. So if you feel that you need to do something, if you feel drawn to something, by all means, go and explore that. I think that our bodies intuitively are telling us, guiding us, you know, pushing us in directions sometimes that we really don't listen to them. But there's a reason we might have these gut instincts. And it's because our body is saying, hey, go and do this. This is what I need. And so many of us just tune that out. Uh, but when we tune in, when we lean into our bodies, it's amazing how connected we can become and how we can really lean into deeply understanding where we've got to go with our treatment. So if you feel that the GAPS diet is for you, go and explore that. And it's great that you're saying, you know, you're going to take into consideration some of the more higher FODMAP elements so that you go in, you know, with consideration so that you can, you know, you can do it with SIBO in mind. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I mean, I know it's, and I've certainly been here, it can be, you go online and it can be kind of overwhelming. You find these different plans for SIBO, right? And then it can be kind of overwhelming, just sort of trying to find the answer. And then you have this thing. And like you mentioned earlier, there'll be allowed lists and not allowed lists and don't have this. And there's a lot of sort of, it's all very, it can feel very scary and it can feel very, you know, if I step outside of this, I'm doing something wrong when really everybody is so different and what's right for you might not be right for me and what's right for me now might not be right for me down the road. So if I were to do, for example, gaps, maybe, you know, when my numbers were 268, it probably would have been a nightmare, but it kind of, you know, it kind of feels like maybe a good step for me now. So I think, yeah, it's a great point. And um, I think one of your earlier guests, uh, a nutritionist had mentioned that she gets concerned by people just going online and finding information. And, you know, my, my experience over the last year, um, learning what it's, learning all this information on nutrition and what it takes to, to really help people with nutrition and find their own path. It just focused so much as well on bio-individuality and working with a person's specific situation and not just sort of giving them some sort of generic, um, you know, guidelines to go by because everyone is so different. We are completely different and our microbiome is different. Therefore, the food and dietary requirements we all have are different to one another. So by all means, use the SIBO diets as a guideline, but they're not to be followed rigidly because you do need to modify and tailor according to your own personal needs. And if you feel overwhelmed at thinking, well, how on earth do I do that? Seeking out the services of a SIBO experienced nutritionist or dietitian is an is a brilliant investment. Someone that has worked with many SIBO patients before, that they do understand this condition and that they can then work with you to develop a personalized nutritional plan. And also not only that, that they can be working with you on broadening your um, the foods that you're eating and your dietary intake, because the goal is to get you eating as broadly as possible, as quickly as possible. So I really recommend investing in that. I've interviewed several fantastic dietitians and nutritionists on my podcast. So go check out some of my interviews with the likes of people like Angela Pfeiffer, Riley Wiminger. Um, I've also got Heidi Turner, who's a dietitian, Jessica Cox, and Christy Reagan. Uh, to name a few, and also Steph Loam. So there's a few names to go and check out on my podcast. Now we've got time for one more question. So is there anything else that you would like to ask me before we wrap up today? This was a really interesting one. Um, I've sort of wrestled with myself a lot about how important, I mean, of course, 
we all know that stress management is super important. Many people these days are very overstressed and whatnot, and then that can be very damaging to health. So I've kind of played in my mind how how much of a factor is is stress management? Because you hear things about people will talk about how day to day they're having major symptoms, you know, despite eating foods they feel like they can to- they can tolerate, and then they go off on vacation and they're just they just sort of say like I'm just going to enjoy myself, I'm going to forget this dietary thing for a while and just relax, and then they say well what the heck you know they were eating all these foods they didn't think they can tolerate and they're feeling much better, their digestive symptoms are much better, so that makes me think you know that stress could be even bigger of a of a component than maybe you know the different SIBO information out there gives credit for but I mean it's obviously not the whole picture but I'm kind of curious your thoughts on you know from speaking with with experts and just others and in, in um, that are going through SIBO what's your take on I don't know if you can put a number on it but the how important stress management is to the to the overall picture sort of relevant uh, relative to diet and the other factors well, I think stress is a major factor with people with SIBO. If we think about what happens when we're stressed and we think about just that primal body function, so stress was there really to help us survive in stressful situations such as caveman days, we're fighting a woolly mammoth, we need to run or fight or freeze. And when we went into a stress response, our body would pump Um, oxygenated blood cells to our muscles, to our lungs, to areas of the body that would enable us to survive or fight. And it would divert energy and attention away from the digestive system because we didn't need to be processing food at that time in order to survive. Now, in the modern world, stress is present every day for so many of us. We're stressed because we're running late. We're stressed because we've got kids and we're working a career and we're running a household and we've got so much on our plates. Now, our bodies haven't adapted to a, you know, we've we've evolved a lot quicker than our little immune system and our nervous system has been able to evolve. So our nervous system doesn't know that that stress is any different today than it was thousands of years ago when we were fighting for survival, it just still sees it as stress. And so when we are stressed, we're diverting energy away from our digestive system. Our digestive system is already compromised. It's already not working efficiently because we have SIBO. And so to add stress on top of that, we're just making it even harder for our little digestive system to work efficiently. And I know firsthand that me dealing with my stress has been a really vital aspect of my recovery. I know that with many of my clients, it is a really vital aspect for their recovery as well. I know that when I'm stressed, my symptoms are way more likely to flare up than when I'm relaxed. And it's really about finding what works for you with stress management and also identifying what are your stresses and how can you manage them. Now, some of them can be managed. Some of them can't be managed and it's about putting other things in place to give your body a bit of relief. So let's say it's around, you know, for many women, uh, I speak to many women uh, who are mums, they're running a household, they're working, a lot of the kind of day-to-day 
actions, chores, whatever you want to call them, still falls on their shoulders. And they feel completely overwhelmed by it. There's not enough sleep happening. They're exhausted. They don't feel supported by family or their partner. And so we'll often look at what can you how can you share some of that workload? So it can be about giving kids some of the, um, you know, some home duties to help out mum so that she doesn't have to do anything. It can be about sitting down with a partner and saying, I really need some support. I'm not well at the moment and I can't do it all anymore. Uh, I had one client who ran her own business, had young kids, had a partner who was out working and she was literally burning out. And so we looked at how could, you know, she said, you know, it's really stressful by the time we're having dinner, I'm just exhausted. So what we did was we looked at how could she or get the kids involved in helping make dinner. And so, and the kids then got really interested in it. They really enjoyed cooking. It meant they spent some time with mum. She sat down with her partner and said, I just physically can't do everything anymore. I really need your help with these things. And so he was able to start um, leaning in and taking some of the burden off her. And, you know, this isn't a quick fix. It takes some time to implement these things. But I we had a, a session with each other and she was some months later and she was like, oh, it's, it, it really has made a difference. I just feel so uh, more relaxed. I don't feel so overwhelmed anymore. And that, that was that was having an impact on how she felt. In my particular case, I'm my um, my husband is very supportive. Sometimes I'll just have no energy. Sort of, um, you know, at the end of his work day, he'll come home and I'll just say, you know, if you could just do the next few hours, I kind of need to go lie down, and he'll he'll be great like that. Um, again, it just depends on the day. Some days have more energy than others, and the one the one thing that I um, it's a bit of a challenge for me is when I'm in a period where I feel a more rough, a little less energy, is I know I feel that proactive stress management for me is really, really helpful. So waking up a half hour earlier before the kids wake up and doing some meditation, some yoga, some affirmations to really start the day on the right foot is very, very helpful to me. But then those mornings where I'm sure a lot of listeners can um, identify with this, you just wake up and you do not feel refreshed at all. Those mornings, I, you know, it's, it's a bit of a struggle to decide, will that extra half hour of sleep help more or will starting the day on the right foot? So, you know, that that's, those are kind of the rougher periods. And then when I'm kind of having more energy, things just seem to, to flow more overall. But I mean, definitely having a support network is, is important. I'm really lucky um, in that way, not only my husband, but I, you know, there are three sets of grandparents around that are able to help with children and whatnot. So um, support is super important. That's wonderful. I'm so happy to hear that you've got that. Um, just just touching on uh, the comment you've made around waking up and, and doing some meditation, positive affirmations, it can be really beneficial. And, you know, finding something that works for you is really important to, uh, and this is for the listeners, uh, you know, if there's something that you do that makes you, you know, feel present some mindfulness practice, some meditation. It can be a really great way to start the day. Um, but again, it comes back to listening to your body. So if you wake up one morning and you've planned to do your meditation and you just feel absolutely exhausted, for you that day, the best thing may be getting an extra half an hour or an hour of sleep if you can do that versus getting up and, and kind of forcing yourself through um, this morning ritual. If you know that that morning ritual really re, uh, really energizes you by the end of it, then you might make the de decision to get up and do it because you know you'll feel better. But listen to your body, um, really connect with how you're feeling and 
do what's right for you that day or that hour or that moment. Um, You know, we can be really hard on ourselves. We can be our own worst critics. And just because you said, I'm going to wake up at 5.30 a.m. and I'm going to do my positive affirmations and I'm going to do 20 minutes of meditation and you wake up and you feel really sick, well, just you know, allow your body to to tell you how it's feeling and to work with it rather than saying, well, I must do it because I said I would and what a failure I'll yeah. be if I don't <laughs> do it. Help it. Um, so, you know, it's not the path to health is not one straight line ahead. It is bumpy. It has hair bent turns. Sometimes it goes back on itself. I often, in my coaching sessions, I often, I use two images. One, which is a straight road in the middle of the desert, clear blue skies, nothing to see except straight road ahead. And most of us think that that is the way forward when it comes to health. And the second image I use is this really windy, scary looking road on the side of a snow-covered mountain. It's icy, it's cold, uh, dangerous conditions ahead. And that's actually the reality of recovering from a chronic condition like SIBO, that we can be going in one direction. It can feel like we've had to turn around and go back on ourselves. Um, but ultimately, we are moving forward. So listen to your body, tune into how it's feeling and do what's what you need to do in that moment or that day or that week that will help you move towards recovery and sometimes getting an extra half an hour of sleep is the most important thing you can do wise words it's like the hero's journey right we're all kind of on our own our own journey and it's sort of good to recognize at any point where we're at and that we're exactly where we need to be and just what are the next what are the best steps to more move forward on this journey Exactly. So Christy Campbell, thank you so much for joining. You are one of the many listeners of the Healthy Gut Podcast and it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. If anybody else who's listening today would like to come in and do exactly what Christy has done, then you can do so by emailing me at Rebecca at thehealthygut.com to let me know that you're interested in coming on or you can leave me a pre-recorded message which I will bring into a podcast and answer for you. You can do that at thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast. Now, Christy, if anybody would like to connect with you, uh, how's the best place for them to do that? Oh, great. Um, so right now I'm doing a lot of Instagramming, uh, moving forward, especially as I look to have a profession within uh, nutrition, moving forward, I'll have a blog and whatnot. But right now I'm kind of, I'm on Instagram mainly. My my handle there is foodiekmc, that's F-O-O-D-I-E-K-M-C, all together. And uh, yeah, I post a lot of delicious food that I make and moving forward as I'm going to be going on the, the GAPS diet and maybe trying some other health diets as well as I'm kind of a, a, I consider myself a guinea pig as well. And I'd like to actually experience the different healing type diets and approaches that, you know, A, to help myself move forward, but B, if I'm going to be working with other individuals with gut issues moving forward, I'd like to actually have sort of walked the walk. So yeah, you'll find different recipes and you'll find sort of my experiments within gaps and other, um, possibly other Uh, kind of healing approaches moving forward. So I have lots of fun on there. Wonderful. So do connect with Christy on Instagram if you'd like to see more of her journey. So thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It's been lots of fun. 
If you'd like to come onto the show, as I said, I'd love to hear from you. So do send me an email at rebecca at thehealthygut.com. And that was a great interview with Christy Campbell. It's always wonderful to hear real life journeys with SIBO. If you would like to connect with me, make sure you head to any one of my social media platforms. I love hearing from you. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Google+, YouTube. Uh, I think that's everywhere I am. Look for me under The Healthy Gut. And don't forget to leave a rating and review for the show. It really helps me to know what how you're finding the show. But also, most importantly, it helps other people with SIBO know that this is the right place for them to learn more about this condition. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Christy Campbell. If you would like to be just like her and come on to the Healthy Gut Podcast, I would love to hear from you. Drop me an email at rebecca at thehealthygut.com or head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast where you can record a little two minute audio clip and I will insert that into a future episode. And please do head to Apple Podcasts or the app you use to listen to this and leave a five-star rating and a review. Not only do I love hearing why you love the Healthy Gut Podcast, but it also helps new people who are looking for podcasts on SIBO to know that this is the right podcast for them. And come say hi on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest, and Twitter. We love hearing from you. We love answering your questions. We love connecting with you on all our social media channels. So we'll see you there. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Red Lemon Productions for the production and original music score of this podcast. To find out more about their services, head to redlemonproductions.com. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.